0: We are in the last chapter of Hebrews starting this morning. We are in chapter 13. So then we'll hear just the first three verses. Hear then the Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Pray with me. Our Father, we come to you. We come, Father, longing to hear your voice. Longing for your word to be spoken with power into our lives. That our lives would be shaped by it. That we would be conformed to it. That we would be more of what you have made and designed and desired for us to be. Come now, by your Spirit and your grace, and work among us, through your Word. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. book of Hebrews is a rather long book. It's not unlike some of the other letters, even, that are in the New Testament. The first part of it had been mostly doctrine, as you see in chapters 1 to 10. It was not entirely, but mostly a doctrine, what we call the uh, indicative, telling us the truth, propositional truth, telling us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and walking us through how Jesus has fulfilled all of those Old Testament types and promises and prophecies. And so it, is, it has been very doctrinal in that sense, but it's telling us the way of God's of salvation that He's provided in Christ. When we spend time in chapter 11, we actually spent quite a bit of time there, the great hall of faith, right, where He's taken that, that salvation that He's been talking about and, and the faith by which we are saved. And he illustrates it in the lives of so many of his people, walking us through so many of those Old Testament characters and then wrapping it up, saying that in the whole life of the church, this is what it looks like to live a life of faith. And now as we get into chapter 12 and now into 13, there's been more practical application, right? This is like Paul's Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, propositional truth, the indicatives, uh, the doctrine, and in chapters 4 to 6, The application, the imperatives, the commands. Here's therefore what you do. Given all this truth, here's how you are to live. Here's who you are to be. And so that's where we are in chapter 13 in that part of the book of Hebrews. A lot of the practical application of the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because of who he is and because of what he has done that we have spent months looking at, he tells us now what the life looks like, the massive moral and spiritual implications of the truth that is in Christ. He explains how Jesus and his unshakable kingdom change everything, change us. So chapter 13, it's going to address things like loving God's people and hospitality in the home and caring for the suffering and faithfulness in marriage and greed and contentment and generosity and submission to leadership in the church. Just a sample of the kind of applications, implications and applications that we find throughout the New Testament. It's full of that kind of practical follow-up. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, here's a few of them. Of what it looks like. Today, we're just gonna look at these first three. There's one in each verse. Verse one, we're gonna talk about brotherly love. Verse two, we're gonna talk about love for the stranger. In verse three, we're gonna talk about compassionate love, right? Practical religion. Loving our brothers, loving the stranger, compassionate love to those who are suffering. And so, verse one, he tells us, let brotherly love continue. In the Greek, that's really just two words. Um, but it takes a few English words to unpack those words. What you get in this verse, this "let brotherly love," you get the, is the word Philadelphia, right? It's where the city gets its name, the city of brotherly love, right? It's Philadelphia it's Phil, it's two Greek words, phileo and delphos. Phileo is the love, delphos is your brothers, the love that we have for our brothers. Right? Jesus said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, if you remember way back there, he said, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. My brothers and sisters. Brothers there is inclusive. It's often just used to be inclusive of all the siblings. And he says, I'm not ashamed to call you his brothers and his sisters. It's an amazing, unbelievable thing. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons and the daughters of God, the brothers, the sisters of the Lord Jesus. God is our Father. He has adopted us as His children, and we have become His family, brothers and sisters with Christ, the family of God. And so we should, we should have this concept about the people that are in this room, the people down the pew from you. Right? We're family. We're blood-related, literally related by the blood of Jesus who brings us together. And so I want to say just three things coming out of this where he says to let this Philadelphia, this love of our brothers and our sisters, brotherly love, to continue. Three things. First of all, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is the mark, one of the marks, a chief mark of a true Christian. Right? The scripture is very clear about it in very many Ways. It's a mark of a true Christian. It's a Christian grace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit that has caused you to be born again, has caused her to be born again, has caused him to be born again. The same Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, has indwells each of us. Sometimes when Paul writes to the church and says, you know, that you are the temple. Sometimes he's saying individually, you're the temple. And sometimes it's corporate saying, you're the temple, right? You're the dwelling place of God. We are one building, one family, one body in Christ. And so, John thirteen thirty four, Jesus says this. If you remember John 13, 13 to 17 is the upper room. He's about to be betrayed and crucified and die. Within 24 hours or so, he's going to be dead. And so the upper room, John 13 to 17, are his his last chance to teach his disciples. These are the last things that he has to say to them. These are the things he, he wants to tell them before he goes. You guys, right? these are the things, hear me on these. And he teaches them these few things. And one of the things, when he has his guys together, he says this, a new commandment I give to you. You have to love one another, right? You guys have to love one another. Just as I have loved you as a brother. I've been a brother to you and I've loved you. And you now need to love each other. Right? He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. He says it again. You are to love one another. It's one of the last things that Jesus says on earth is that you are to love your brothers and your sisters. You are family. John 3, 1 John 3, verse 14, he says this. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we've been born again. We know that we've been saved. We know that we no longer abide in death, but we have the light of life. We know that we have the Spirit of God. We know we've passed from death unto life. How do we know? What's the test? What's the mark? What is something that will help me to know that this movement has taken place in my soul? What are the things that I've passed from death to life? Because we know it because we love the brothers and the sisters. We know it because we have become part of the family. And we now belong together. Connected together. It's one of the marks. He says, whoever does not love, and in the context, it's love our brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love his brothers and sisters abides in death. You can say, I'm born again and I'm a Christian. But if you don't love the church, you don't love your brothers and sisters, you don't love the children of God, he says, well, maybe something hasn't happened for you. Because it's one of the marks of his children, is that they love his other children. And they're part of his family. It's a key test of faith. So the second thing, that's the first thing. It is a chief mark of what it means to be a Christian, according to to his word, that you'll you'll notice that you belong to something bigger than yourself now. And you'll love it. And you'll love them. And the second thing I want us to hear coming out of this is when we hear this, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. When we hear this, we should hear. An exhortation to be committed to the local church. Right? That's part of, I think, when you hear that statement, you should hear, when he says, let your brotherly love continue, it is a command, a call, an exhortation, right? To be committed to the local church. That is the brothers and sisters who are closest to you, right? The, The brothers and sisters in proximity to you. How can you love? How can love for your brothers continue unless you're with and you have brothers and sisters? Right? What is the church? I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, I've told you many times, if you don't know, you should be able to tell me. What is the word throughout the New Testament when you see the word church in your Bible, what's the Greek word that's being translated? What is the word underneath the word church? Ecclesia, right? And the word ecclesia is a simple word, it's a general word, it's used in many contexts, but here it is translated, the simple meaning of the word is to be assembled, to be gathered. So when he writes to the church in Corinth, he's writing to the gathered people of God in Corinth. When he writes to the church, or he talks about the church, he's talking about the gathered people. He never writes to, in that sense, individuals. The church, the word literally means gathered together. Being together. So the gathering of who? God's family. Your brothers and sisters. This is why in Hebrews 10, if you remember, 10 chapter, 10 verse 25, do not neglect to meet together. Right? It's a command. It's a warning. Right, and He says, as some are in the habit of doing, some some are neglecting it. And it's not good. And he says, do, do not neglect it. Like some are doing. Right, And it's happening even right now. We... As I say, there are a lot of folks who are are neglecting, right? And coming out of COVID, some got back into the habit of church, back into the commitment of church, and some haven't, right? And we still encourage if you're able to be in church, you should be in church. There are those who can't, and we get that. We understand the limitations. But if you can be with your brothers and sisters, you should be with your brothers and sisters, according to the word of God, right? And do not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, because it is only when you're together that you're able to encourage one another all the more as you see the day coming. Love requires togetherness. Right? This should seem in many ways obvious. Because love is a very practical thing. Right? And love has an application in the lives of others. It's a focus on other people's needs and concerns. It's it's outward focused. I can't do it alone in my living room or as in a walk in the woods, right? To love my brothers and sisters requires connection to you. Scripture says that we're to be together. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to pray for one another. We're to confess to one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to challenge one another. All of these things cannot be done alone. We have to be connected together let, to let brotherly love, the love of my brothers and sisters, continue and to pray for them and to bear their burdens and to encourage them. I'm going to have to be with them and with them close enough to know what those burdens are so that I can help bear for them and to pray for them to be in relationship with them, right? It's common. I hear a Christian, someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't belong to the local church. I don't go to church, right? I don't, and you hear things like, oh, I don't need it. You know, I just go for a walk in the woods or I'm out on the lake and I can worship. I don't, you know, I don't need to be together, right? Or I don't like it. Or, um, or even, I don't trust it, right? A lot of people, you know, these days, institutional religion, I don't like it. I don't trust it. I don't need it. You know, some, What is the reason? that we have neglected it. And so they say, yeah, in my living room, I worship just fine in nature and living room. Here's the problem with that. I mean, just listen to it for just a second. It's entirely selfish and self-centered. It's just about them. It is just all about them and what they, right, is care only for themselves. I can worship. I can be. I can have. I can. You know, all I need is me and God right? But is, is that biblical? And I, I, would, I would challenge you to read the New Testament from page one to the end, and it is corporate in its very essence of what it means to be God's people. It means to be literally the church together, gathered. God says if you're his child, That you should love your brothers and sisters. You should worship with them. You should pray with them. You should fellowship with them. You should serve with them. You should serve them. You should give and participate in the family's life, right? Loving God's family, being connected to God's people is the first implication that he's given us coming out of all of this other stuff he's been teaching us in the book of Hebrews. And he gets to this point and says, and therefore... Love your brothers and your sisters. Keep on. I like the NIV's translation of this verse is keep on. And I think it captures the Greek and the intention of it. Keep on loving your brothers and sisters. Don't stop. Don't stop gathering. Don't stop bearing each other's burdens. Don't stop encouraging each other. Right? Don't start challenging each other and serving with each other. Don't stop being the family of God. The church is God-given. It's His idea. It's, it's the whole New Testament is sh- church-shaped, so to speak, right? It's God-given. It's Christ-built. He is building his church. It is spirit-empowered. It is, it is God-given, Christ-built, spirit-empowered vehicle for the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God on earth. And the guy walking in the woods by himself is not part of it. And is neglecting and disobeying what God is calling them to. are hard words. They're God's words. The soil for our own spiritual growth is here among His people. And so the third thing I want to say is this. The love of the church, this let brotherly love continue, one of the reasons that it needs to continue is that it is the observable evidence of the truth and the power of the gospel. So in one way, we started out saying it's one of the the proofs and the marks of the fact that that we're part of it, is that that we're part of it. it, But it's also one of the marks that it demonstrates to the world. It's a witness to the world. It's a significant part of what the world can taste and see, the goodness and the love of God in the lives of his people, and the community that he is creating Right, John 13, 35, Jesus says this, By this, by this, all people are going to know that you guys are my disciples. If you love your brothers and your sisters. Right, if you love one another. By this, the world is going to know it is part of your testimony Right? He says this, he prays this in John 17, part of the upper room discourse. Again, his last words on earth, John 17, that last prayer when he has them all together. And he prays that they would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And by this shall all the world know that the Father has sent him, that the gospel is true, because his people are one, even as he and the Father are one, that he's binding us together. It is the practical, observable love of God in the life of the church that is a witness to the watching world. People look on and say, I wish people would love me like that, serve me like that, walk with me like that. I wish I had that community. I wish I had that, you know, there's, there's one, one of the things that draws people in, what people crave because we're created that way, is community, family. Francis Schaefer says our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect. Do not forsake. Love each other. And so first, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Verse 2, he tells us also then, to love strangers, right? So now I'm going I'm to depart a little bit, at least the way I'm going to explain it and, and come at it from the way a lot of people understand the word hospitality, right? Verse 2, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality. And what comes to your mind when you hear hospitality, I'm going to challenge it just a little bit, maybe, um, in terms of hospitality. Because he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality has to do with strangers, and thereby, some have entertained angels unawares that those strangers turn out to be angels, right? And so there is, but when we hear the cultural, the way it's used today, the cultural definition, we temporally mean this, having friends and other church people in our homes for dinner, right? That's Christian hospitality, having people from church over for dinner is often or not, that's what we think of, which is a fine thing, by the way, um, but I would suggest that that idea, having church people, family, brothers and sisters over for dinner, is more an application of the biblical idea of koinonia. Right? So whenever you see the word fellowship in your New Testament, the word underneath it being translated is koinonia. Koinonia is a word that, that is best understood as like the sharing of life right, it's, it's not just, we think of fellowship too, we kind of use it surfacely, you know, we had fellowship, we got together and watched a football game, well, koinonia is not like watching a football game, koinonia is sharing life together, right, it's bearing each other's burdens, it's being there when people need you, it's being together and knowing what's going on in other people's lives and praying for them, right, it's, it's shared life, koinonia is a shared life, I would suggest that what we often think of as hospitality is actually an application of koinonia, of the shared life. And there is, a, there is a, a rich fellowship, a koinonia that can take place around the table and the sharing of meals. But I'm going to say this, the biblical word hosp- that's translated hospitality here and everywhere, the biblical word, the historical practice and the context right here make it very clear that that's not what it means. The Greek word is just like we just did Philadelphia, phileo love your brothers, The Greek word here, hospitality, underneath it is the Greek word philoxenos. right? So again, you're loving someone, So the first one's loving your brothers. There's koinonia and having dinner with your brothers and sisters. Philoxenos. the word xenos is the word for a foreigner, a stranger, an alien, someone who's not from around here, somebody you don't know, right? And so hospitality is love of the stranger, love of the newcomer, lover of the traveler, the person who shows up. Right, And, and it, and it complements, love your brothers, love strangers. Right? And so we'll see this, philozinos. that's literally what it means. It literally means love strangers, aliens, visitors, outsiders. Right? And, then, and, and here it's translating, when it says show, verse 2, show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality to strangers is actually one word in the Greek, philoxenos Right? But they pull it out to say, and he didn't just say hospitality. He said hospitality to strangers, because that's literally what the word is. That's what the word is saying. They take multiple English words to translate this one Greek word. But it's what it means, entertaining strangers, outsiders, foreigners, someone you don't know. The New Bible Dictionary defines it. New Bible Dictionary is a solid evangelical Standard reference work, and if you look up hospitality, it defines it this way. The practice of entertaining strangers graciously. Right? The practice of entertaining strangers graciously. It's also deeply embedded. So here's the meaning of the Greek word, but the concept of loving strangers is deeply embedded in Middle Eastern culture. Right, it's a big part of the of Old Testament culture, and so Jesus' culture and the New Testament culture, where they are, a big part of that was this uh, of, of taking care of the traveler, the stranger, right? And so you know Genesis eighteen, you hear the story. It's what's being referenced to here because he says, you know, uh, show hospitality to strangers. Just show hospitality, which means love. Show love to strangers thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Right? That's a story about Abraham sitting at the store at the front of his tent, hanging out, and three guys shows up he's never seen before. He doesn't know them. They're travelers. But the culture is, if there are travelers that show up, right, you need to, if they need housing, house them. If they if feed them, give them water. Right? The, the Hospitality is to care for folks in that kind of a situation. And he makes a big deal. So Abraham makes a big deal. He bows down to these guys. He invites them to stay. Hey, come and, and eat and I'll feed you. Right? This is the cultural practice. This is what we are, as, as God's people, we're called to do is to love the stranger and to welcome them. Right? And so he does this. And what happens is, it turns out, those three guys were angels. <laughs> Two are angels and one is the angel of the Lord, maybe in the Lord himself. And so he's saying that Abraham, by exercising, practicing hospitality, um, entertained angels in his house. See, so the text makes clear that they entertained angels unawares, and the only way you can do that is by entertaining strangers. Right? So I don't want to offend anybody. But if I were to invite you over to dinner, Pretty sure I'm not gonna entertain any angels unaware. Right? I just don't think it's gonna happen. I love you. But you're no angel. Right? You can't entertain an angel unawares unless you don't unless you're strangers, right? They're they're newcomers. Right? That, it's the meaning of the word. It's just the same word here as it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. And here's the example that he gives. Raymond Brown, a commentator on it, says first century inns were notoriously immoral, unhygienic and expensive. Christian travelers had to know that they could count on a warm welcome and a a safe welcome uh, at the home of a fellow believer. All of the preachers in the New Testament were itinerant. You get the idea in some of the letters. I think it's Second John or one of them, like, like, like these people, you should show them love and honor and send them forth in a way in a manner that's worthy of God. Right? You should entertain these people when they come. They may be strangers, you may not know them, but if they're believers, you should you should take care of them. So we see that Philozenia, love to strangers. Is a compliment to Philadelphia, loving our brothers and having dinner with them and developing a relationship with them and, and, and sharing koinonia with them. And so for me, translating biblical hospitality, which is literally love of strangers into our culture, is a little more challenging. Who are the travelers? right? Who are the outsiders? Who are the strangers? Who are the people that I don't know that I should show this hospitality, this gracious welcome to? So I'll give you just a few quick ideas you could do as a, um, travelers, Christian travelers. We had some friends whose children were looking at Covenant College and they needed a place to stay. Right? So stay with us. Right? We have missionaries that visit or missionaries that are home on furlough and need a place to stay. Stay with us. Right? Or show some hospitality. Have them over. They don't, they don't have the same kind of roots there that you do. Neighborhood evangelistic Bible study, the idea of inviting people into your home that you don't know as well, inviting neighbors or unbelievers. Um, uh, Rosaria Butterfield has a house, something about a house key, but a book on hospitality. but well, the story she tells it there of opening her home up to all kind of people um, in some really radical ways that are challenging to me, and I don't know that I could do any of them. But there is this idea of, of opening your door, inviting neighbors, inviting... People who don't know Jesus, you know, students who are at the local university or away from home or, or even international students, but who we can show gracious welcome to. I think it can apply. For me, as I think about it, it applies in a large way to us as a church. Because us as a community and as a home, there are people who come and who visit. I say strangers for the moment because we don't know them. Visitors to the church who, who, who come by our door, like come by Abraham's tent. Do we show them a welcome? Do we show them a gracious welcome and hospitality? You know, maybe invite them. So, I mean, one way to do it is maybe invite a visitor to go to lunch with you after church and get to know them, right? Or invite them home or to follow up with them in some way. But, new, but it's one of the ways that we, how do we deal with those people we don't know, but who we have an obligation to show grace And welcome to. Leviticus 19.34. It says that you shall treat the stranger. Who sojourns with you. As the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Because you are strangers. In the land of Egypt. And I am the Lord your God. Which is to say. You are strangers. And I invited you in. You were outsiders. But now you're the family. Right? You were lost. But now you are found with me. Right? There is a sense of making outsiders into insiders. I think is the idea of hospitality is, is that coming together and loving even the folks we don't know as well. This is, again, having people over, I think, is, is koinonia. I think we should do it. There's something about sharing a meal that's part of their culture as well. And you do it with strangers and you do it with each other in koinonia. So finally, so we have the love of the brothers and the love of the strangers uh, and we have the love of the suffering. In verse three, we see he says, "Remember those who are in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, because you are also in the body." Lovingly remember, I think believers who are imprisoned or suffering for their faith. I think the context here; it doesn't actually say it. It says, "Those who are in prison." I don't think it's a general thing to, to necessarily love. Again, I'm not, that's not to say we shouldn't do ministry in prisons. I'm just saying here what I think he is exhorting us to is, to is to love and to care for our brothers and sisters who have been imprisoned or are suffering. Part of it, I think, is we see it throughout the New Testament, but go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partner with those who are so treated, right? Which is exactly what he's telling us to do here, is to partner with those who are being mistreated, you know? Because we also are subject to these kind of things. For you had compassion, which is exactly what he's telling us to do here, with those who are in prison. But you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, knowing that you yourselves had a better and abiding one, right? He's talking about the community of saints' suffering, and how the body cares for those parts of the body which are being mistreated or finding themselves even imprisoned. Right? Throughout history and around the world, this has happened to Christians. It's happening to Christians throughout the New Testament. Paul was imprisoned. And he talked about those who visited him and brought him things and cared for him in his imprisonment. Right? We see that, that throughout their struggle, as the Hebrews here, have, some have been imprisoned. And he is saying, we we need to have special compassionate love for those who are brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith. Remember those in prison as if you were in there with them, right? It could be you, you could be next. Love them and care for them as if it were you isolated in prison. Remember those who are being mistreated since you're also in the body, which I think means that you're exposed to the same kind of suffering. It could be you and you could be next. Right? He's calling us to remember the persecuted church, to love them. Now, the most, I think the most immediate application, the most poignant application of this would be is if a member of our church had done something that is speaking their faith, standing on your faith, proclaiming your faith, uh, is arrested. And you, one of us is in jail. One of you is in jail. One of the people down the pew, someone whose face you would recognize or someone you had dinner with at the church dinner. Right? This is poignant. He's writing to a group of people, and he's talking about people in their group who have been imprisoned. Right? And so this has a poignancy to say if one of our members was so mistreated or imprisoned, what it would be like for us as a body to remember them, right, to care for their needs, to go, what do they need, you know, their family who may be left behind if the husband's in jail, who's caring for the family, what needs do they have, his children, you know, or if someone is being mistreated and so they have suffered loss and how does the church come alongside and care for them? Right? I think that's the most immediate idea of what's going on here. How will we pray for them? How do we secure their release? How do we take care of them and, and theirs? Right? And it's so close to home. But, but we're not experiencing this in America right now. Praise be to God. Not in this way. Right? But we think of Christians around the world. People, brothers and sisters, we don't know. It's a form of stranger love that we don't know but who are suffering and how we combine those two, the love of our brothers and sisters, but they're strangers to us or around the world. Suffering. How do we enter into their sufferings? As if they were our own, right? As if they were one of us. To care for them, to pray for them. I mean, it's a small thing. We celebrate or recognize or participate in praying for the persecuted church Sunday. So one Sunday a year, sometime in November, like, we recognize the fact that our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering. And we try to remember that and we pray for them. Sadly, it's one Sunday a year. And I would just encourage us there are ways that we could be more informed. I, I, I mean, one way is for me, I get the Christian Post. It's an email. I don't even know how I got on it, but I like it. Just a bunch of headlines in the Christian world. But in there, there's usually a missionary story, it tells you the headline from around the world. There were a couple in there this week. One of them was of a Christian man in Pakistan who was just sentenced to life in prison for blasphemy because he lost a phone two years ago and somebody tweeted something about the prophet Muhammad. Now, if you don't know that in Muslim countries there are called blasphemy laws, it's not saying that's something negative about God that may be included, but if it's about don't, don't talk bad about Muhammad. If you say anything about Muhammad, it is punishable by law. He 's going to prison for life because something on one of his phones was against, said something negative about Muhammad right life I don't, I don't know much in didn't, Brown I didn't look at, through it, but you know his family, right his community, if one of you were arrested this week and sentenced to life in prison for speaking your faith in some way, right it's just how do we keep those? So I've prayed for him and I've prayed for his family and for his church and his community. And I think there are good ways that when we become aware of those, even just to pause and pray. Oh God, have mercy on this man. Right? He loves you. He, he's, a fo- he's your follower. And, and somebody else it went after him. This is starting to happen to us here, right? It's starting to happen here. And that's where I would close on this thought is that the day may be coming for us. I mean, right now, they're not imprisoning us or beating us, but you will be shamed. You might be fired, overlooked, canceled because of what you believe, for your faith. And they're moving, if they could, in that direction. They come after you. Like, every Christian business and thing is being sued. They're coming after you. And if they can't get you to do what they want you to do, they try to ruin your business or cancel you and sue you to break you financially. Right? They're doing this systematically. You know, they're, they're so it's it's for us. You may say I'm over dramatic. I hear you. I mean, we're, it's nothing like around the world and through history. But but five years ago, I wouldn't have thought any of it would. Ten years ago, but here we are. Shamed, canceled, fired, overlooked, sued. And the poignant application is as we perhaps. We may be next. And it's to say, how will we love each other when persecution begins and when we suffer? My friends, what we see in these verses is the fact that love is the first fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. But the first fruit is love. And as the first fruit of love, that, that, that fruit of the Spirit that he is saying it's a mark of a genuine Christian, is that, that love as a first fruit is expressed in our human relationships. And so he says, you've got to love your brothers and sisters. You've got to love brothers and sisters everywhere vi- who are visiting or traveling or the stranger. You know, you're to show that love. You're to love your brothers and sisters as they suffer. He's just taking the, the first fruit of the Spirit. God is love. Right? John 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Let us love one another. Love each other. Why? Because God, love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. It is the first fruit of his spirit that it is expressed in our relationships of all kinds. Love our brothers and sisters. Love the stranger. Love the visitor. Be compassionate on those suffering. And by this, may all people know that we are his disciples because we truly love one another. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which is living and true. We thank you for the Holy Spirit by whom we have been born again and by whom your love has been poured out into our hearts and into our lives. And we pray that we would experience your love in such a way that it would make us lovers. That we would love the people around us, the people you have put in our lives. We would love your children, our brothers and sisters. We would love well at home and practically. We would love the stranger and the visitor. We would care for those who are in need, who are suffering in various ways. Teach us practical, hands-on love that we may be like you. For we know that you are love and you have loved us so well. So we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.